0: Exodus chapter 10. We're going to continue our examination and, uh, by, by God's grace, complete our examination of the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Now, we started our examination of this last time, and we got to about halfway through the passage, and so we're going to try and pick up where we left off. But the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, is, this is just the real simple thought flow that we're using as we work our way through this passage. It, it consists of Exodus chapter 10, the first 20 verses of the chapter. We're looking first at this prelude to the plague, which uh, we, we almost concluded last time, so we'll, we'll pick it up there. But uh, this, this rather long prelude or preface to the plague itself. The uh, plague is recorded, the procession of the plague, if you will, verse 12 to 15, and then the postlude, uh, verses 16 to 20. And so this, this introduction, prelude, or preface to the plague, begins with a divine preface, right? This was where God gives an announcement through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh as to the purpose of this plague. And this, we, we got through that section last time, uh, but then we looked at the dramatic irony that this announcement that the plague is coming because of the pride of Pharaoh and the wickedness of the Egyptian people... The irony is the Egyptian people look at Moses and Aaron and blame them, right? They say that, well, these people are a snare unto us, that we are trapped because of Moses and Aaron, right? Which is incredibly ironic because they're slaves, right? I mean, they're, the Hebrews are the trapped ones, not the Egyptians, but God is definitely turning the tables on Egypt. And so we see that uh, rather ironic statement in verse 7. Well, then we're going to pick it up tonight in verse 8 and following, this deceitful ploy where they attempt to wheel and deal with Moses and Aaron to try and get them to take a lesser offer, and of course, that won't happen. Uh, Moses and Aaron will resist that, and so God brings the plague, uh, verse 12 and following. So if you got your Bible, let's pick up the story in verse 8, and let's just reread that section, verses 8 through 11, and we'll examine it, all right? We'll take this, this uh, chunk by chunk. Verse eight says, when Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? And Moses said, we will go with our young, with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said to them, let the Lord be so with you, uh, as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, you that are men, and serve the Lord, for that you did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pause there. Now, again, this, uh, try and recall that where this fits in the context. All right? I know last time we talked about this a little bit, but the end of verse 6 recorded a rather uh, abrupt break in protocol where Moses and Aaron, after making the announcement, they turn their back on Pharaoh and they march out of his court. Recall this. That is, of course, a dramatic break in protocol. It would have been an affront to Pharaoh and his authority. But nonetheless, Pharaoh's servants, then of course, that's verse 7, but they persuade Pharaoh to let at least the men go. In other words, let's, let's at least throw them a bone, right? Let's try to somehow uh, give in to their requests. But the, and, they're, and they're pleading with Pharaoh, and this is where we ended last time, that Pharaoh is perhaps aloof, insulated to a certain degree as to the actual extent of the suffering in Egypt. And so his servants are pleading with him and saying, you know, do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? In other words, how long are we going to resist this Yahweh God? And so really pharaoh now is, is kind of put between a rock and a hard spot if you will and so pharaoh's servants have suggested that they make a concession for the sake of egypt and so this is what pharaoh then does and that's where our text picks up in verse eight is that in another first in, in other words this is the first time this has been recorded in the narrative pharaoh has moses and aaron return to the palace for some negotiations related to this imminent pestilence right in other words before the plague actually comes right the announcement was made that's verses one to six Uh, Moses and Aaron storm out, right? They just, they turn their backs and leave. Pharaoh's servants convince Pharaoh to say, hey, let's, let's just make a concession because Egypt is being decimated. Well, then we see Pharaoh relent and he says, all right, okay, so he calls Moses and Aaron back in. That's the first time that's happened in the narrative. So he calls them back in. And clearly, as we read the text, this concession that Pharaoh is making, he's doing because of his frightened officials, right? The the servants of Pharaoh, mentioned in verse 7, have convinced him to do so. So Pharaoh half-heartedly gives Moses his permission to take Israel to sacrifice in the desert, yet Pharaoh is still playing the part of the one in control. How do we know this? Well, notice a number of indicators in this paragraph, in just these verses, verses 8 to 11, how how Pharaoh is trying to make a concession and yet at the same time maintain control. First, notice that he has the Hebrew prophets brought back to the court, right? So he, he they stormed out. So he fetches them. He brings them back. But secondly, the king commands that the prophets, uh, he commands them with a double imperative, right? Go worship. We've seen this double command a few other times in the narrative, in particular when he ordered them, the the Hebrew foreman, to get back to work, back in chapter 5, verse 18. But the idea is it's an emphatic, right? And and again, uh, anytime the, the particularly Hebrew narrative is trying to make a point, it has to write it into the text itself, right? Because it doesn't have exclamation points. But you and I... You know, we can put that there in our language, but the idea is how does they get across the tone of voice, the tone of the language? Well, it's the double imperative that he's going to give two commands back to back, right? In other words, we can read into this a tone of voice, of frustration, uh, of, of Pharaoh, the idea that he's, he's trying to assert his dominance in this situation that seems to become, you know, it's, it's unraveling. As Egypt is being destroyed, Pharaoh is losing control, but he's still trying to hold on to the uh, the facade that he's the one in control. But then lastly, we also see that Pharaoh plays the controller in this passage by trying to ascertain who the Hebrews believe will be going out of the land. In other words, he puts them on the defensive by saying, all right, who do you think is going to go, Right? Uh, in other words, he's he's already implied that they will he'll make a concession he'll allow them to go but now he's going to still control the situation by only allowing you know part of the group to go namely the men so Moses answers that they will all go both young and old to keep a festival to Yahweh right he says nope it's not going to be men only it'll be all of us in our flocks and our herds right this is we're all going for we will we need to hold at the end of verse nine a feast unto the Lord. Now, this word is interesting, the word feast or festival in verse 9, uh, because this word is found throughout the Exodus account as a term for the Passover. We're going to get into this in a couple chapters. But in chapter 12, 13, 23, and 34 of the book of Exodus, we're going to see this word show up multiple times to describe the event of Passover. Passover. And yet here, there's a bit of a, a, a sarcastic note, if I can put it that way, that's evident because of the celebration, this celebration, this festival that they're going to participate in will be at the expense of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. In other words, verse 9 is, he's insisting, hey, we're going to go, we're going to keep a feast, but it's, it's almost like it's a subtle foreshadowing of what's coming like, yeah, they will keep a feast. In fact, later in the book, uh, this is going to become a rather emphatic point. The, this festival will become a yearly occurrence to commemorate the downfall of Egypt. Right? I, I don't remember who uh, first said it, but a number of scholars have made the observation that every time someone is, you know, rises up to try and wipe out the Hebrew nation, what happens? Well, number one, the person fails and they institute a new holiday for the, <laughs> the Egyptians, right? Or, I mean, the, the Hebrews. So, like, when the Egyptians, right, try to wipe out the Hebrews, well, they fail, and now they celebrate Hebrews f- celebrate that every year at Passover. Uh, we have, again, the other one is Purim, right? Haman rises up to try and wipe out the Hebrew people. What happens? Well, he dies, and now they celebrate Purim every year, right? To, to commemorate that occasion. In, in other words, it's... it's it's just a fun, you know, tidbit from history. But every time someone rises up to try and uh, take out God's people, well, they got to celebrate. Uh, you know, a festival to celebrate their, you know, preservation and perseverance. Is
1: the festival lights
0: the same. Thing? Yeah, uh, Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So Hanukkah is. Remember that's or feast of dedication. The word Hanukkah in Hebrew it means dedication. Uh, Hanukkah is a celebration of. Remember at that time it was the Syrian empire which was you know greek it was the greeks but it was in syria the greek version you know of uh, a portion of the greek empire that was in syria was trying to dominate israel at the time right and then you have the maccabees and you have that whole revolt and then they are able to overthrow their syrian overlords and now they celebrate right hanukkah (laughs) i mean it's yeah there's there's a number of examples of that but nonetheless uh so what happens well Pharaoh, he says, well, who's going? Moses says, we're all going and we're going to keep this festival. So Pharaoh's retort in verse 10 is bitter and condescending. And it it is interesting because verse 10, I don't know if you noticed this or thought this as I read through it, uh, this is a difficult verse to translate. A number of translations are going to try and grapple with this verse. So let's camp on this for just a second because it's going to pose to us uh, a couple of interpretive issues. But essentially what verse 10 is getting at is that the king... Claim or exclaims that the only evidence that Yahweh exists will be if Pharaoh releases all the Hebrew people. Yet he insists he will do no such thing. Uh, in other words, I think the thought is perhaps best captured by the NCV translation. Uh, it says this, the Lord will really have to be with you if I ever let you go. All right, that's, that's the idea that he's getting at here in verse 10. When it says, he said unto them, let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go and your little ones. In other words, the concept is he's, it's a mocking sort of response. He says, the Lord will really have to be with you if I let you go. In other words, I have no intention to let you go. And the only, you know, if you ever are released, it will only be be because your God is real, right? Now he's really mocking Yahweh and he's he's confronting Yahweh. Uh, you know, the, the reality of Yahweh. He's is, he is vaunting himself against Yahweh. But in the sen- in a sense, he's, what's fascinating, as Currid points out in the end, the deliverance of the Israelites actually proves Pharaoh's words to be true. That he's actually foreshadowing what will happen. Right, he's, he's meaning to say it as a mockery. Like, I will never let you go, right? He says, you're, you're, <laughs> you're smoking something, right? That's the idea. That, uh, I mean, it's slang, it's a, people say, oh, God help you." Exactly, exactly. God help you, yeah. right, if I ever do, ever, yeah. And the concept is that I'm going to do this, and I mean, you can't stop me, right? And he says, your, your God will have to be with you if I ever let you go, right? Because this will be a supernatural thing if you ever leave Egypt, because I will never let that happen. That's what he's saying. And yet, what he's, what he's, by saying that, he's actually foreshadowing not only what will happen, but that when it happens, it is a supernatural thing. This is how Yahweh demonstrates the reality that he is real, he is with his people, is that he can bring them out of Egypt at the expense of mighty Pharaoh. But the second half of the verse also poses to us an interesting uh, you know, concept. When it says, in the King James, it says, Look to it, for evil is before you. Evil is before you. There's a couple of different ways you can take that phrase the phrase evil is before you can refer either to a threat that Pharaoh will soon make their life difficult. For instance, the New English translation uh, tris- translates it that way. Um, or Pharaoh is accusing them of being up to no good and plotting against the throne of Egypt. Other translations like the SV, NLT, NIV, will take it that way. In other words, this is a it's a it's a phrase that we're not exactly sure which one he's getting at. You know, is he saying that I'm, you know, evil's before you. In other words, you just wait till tomorrow, right? Like, I'm going to make life really hard on you. Or is he saying, is he actually accusing them of plotting against the throne, right? I mean, you can take it one of both, one of both ways, either way. Let's go, Bob, and then I'll go back.
2: Well, I was just thinking, you know, when when Pharaoh said that, so based on what happened later, because like you said, he's kind of projecting what actually happened, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So... As far as when he realized that was true, was that based on how good of a swimmer he was?
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's when it dawns on him, like, yeah, oh, maybe this was a supernatural thing, or yeah. it was the Red Sea collapses on his army, you know, and he's swimming to shore. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> it might have sunk in a little longer if he was a better swimmer. I guess is
0: what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. Amen to that. Preach it, my man.
2: Yeah.
0: Warren, what you got? when your
1: interpretation of verse ten, that seems. these guys will real. Mm-hmm. If you're not real, are still going to
0: be here. Exactly. That's exactly right. And don't forget, don't don't forget to put that back in the context, right? Pharaoh, according to Egypt, you know, myth, Egyptian mythology, Pharaoh is a god, right? And so that's the whole idea is he is viewing himself as the divine god being that is going to keep the Hebrew people there. And he's saying, yeah, he, it's a direct challenge to Yahweh. That if Yahweh is real, only if Yahweh is real, and only if He is more powerful, will will you know Hebrews be delivered? And yet when he and he means to you know say that as a mock, as a challenge to Yahweh, but it ends up being a prophecy that yes, the Hebrews are delivered, and yes, Yahweh is greater than Pharaoh. Exactly. So, but again, he's he's the and you, that that second phrase of the verse, "evil is before you,", you can take it either way. Um, that he's either accusing them of plotting against the throne or he's threatening them all the, the more, which I think at least in the context, uh, I tend to, I don't know, either way makes good sense. The, the first one I tend to lean that way only because it, it seems to flow with Pharaoh's personality, thus we've seen so far, um, is that he's just, he's all the more threatening them. He's just trying to, you know, uh, assert himself all the more because I think it's starting to spiral out of control and he sees it. Yet this phrase may also be, uh, as some scholars point out, it may be a double entendre. In other words, a phrase that has a double meaning. For instance, the Hebrew word for evil is ra'ah, which this may actually be a Hebraized or Hebraized uh, form of the name of the Egyptian sun god, ra. In other words, this ra, one of the Egyptian gods, was particularly important when it comes to the Pharaoh of Egypt, because it was, uh, Ra was believed to be incarnated in the person of Pharaoh. In other words, if we take that phrase as a double entendre, and you wouldn't catch that unless you're reading in the Hebrew, then Pharaoh might be saying that Ra is standing in front of you. Uh, and thus, this would be another intimidation tactic. In other words, he's saying evil is before you, right? You can take that phrase as, hey, you know, I'm going to make life hard on you. Second, you're, you know, he's accusing them of plotting against the throne. Or third, he may actually be saying, Ra is standing in front of you. Who do you think you are, right? Yahweh is no God at all. Ra is standing in front of you, right? And that's a rather provocative statement. It's an interesting way to take that phrase, you know, that he may be saying that. Um, But regardless of how you take those particular phrases. The point is that he's he's asserting his dominance. That's the point. He's, he's coming back uh, to try and, again, assert that he's in control when, of course, he's not. So this then, of course, is followed up. Pharaoh then does allow them to depart in the next verse, verse uh, uh, 11. But he says he'll let them depart only the men can depart, right? In other words, leave the women, the children, the flocks, the herds. And so, again, in this regard, the king has accepted the advice of his courtiers back in verse 7, but he's trying to, you know, give a concession, but he is trying to to restrict it, right? Still control who goes, etc. Well, again, this, uh, the reason for such a restriction is obvious. Pharaoh is holding hostage the families of the Israelite men. He knows the Hebrew men would never abandon their families, and so he is still attempting to keep Israel in subjection, right? He's saying, well, you can go, but he can uh, keep their families. Therefore, he's planning on them coming back. But then what happens next? At the end of verse 11, you can clearly see Pharaoh is upset because it says then that they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. In other words, Moses and Aaron were then insulted by being chased from the premises. Again, another s- string, as Kaiser points out, of wicked firsts. There's a number of things that happen you know, for the first time in this particular plague narrative because the tension is mounting, right? Pharaoh is getting, his patience is wearing thin. He's getting more hostile towards the Hebrews, and he's taking it out on uh, Moses and Aaron, and there's all these threats, et cetera. So they're, they're threatened, and then they're chased from Pharaoh's presence, which then, of course, means the plague must begin. So let's read verse 12 to 15. What happens next? It says, And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, Uh, that they may come up upon the land of egypt and eat every herb of the land even all that the hail hath left so moses stretched forth his rod over the land of egypt and the lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night and when it was morning the east wind brought the locusts and the locusts went up over all the land of egypt and rested in all the coasts of egypt very grievous were they Before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees, or in the herbs of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Pause there. Now, uh, these verses, verses... Uh, 12 to 15, record the actual sending of the plague of locusts. Now, uh, again, if vocabulary is any indication of significance, then locusts were a significant creature in the Old Testament world. For if you look at the Old Testament Hebrew, there are at least uh, 11 different Hebrew words in the scripture referring to a locust. Uh, and there are very, the various types of locusts, the various uh, you know stages of the growth of the locust. There's various synonyms, and the idea is that it, it was a pretty important uh, you know feature. The plague itself is, of course, what we, we talked about this last time, right? Simone gave personal testimony as to uh, the plague of well, it was Mormon crickets, right, just crickets. or just crickets. Okay, when you were living in uh, Fa- Fallon, yeah, I was going to say F- Fallon, yeah then you know, I lost confidence. I was like, was it Fallon or Fernley? Fallon. <laughs> Not Fernley. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just offended her. No. <laughs> but, but that's, I mean, oh, when he says it, so, and we went to the book of Joel last time. You remember that? And we read Joel chapter 2, first about 10 or 11 verses, where it also describes a locust plague. But here it's described as darkening the land, right? It covers the face of the whole earth. Not one green thing is left, Etc. Now, another interesting feature of the plague, as it's recorded, is that it's they're brought on by the east wind. Now, normally, locusts approach Egypt from the south. Thus, their coming from the east indicates an abnormal condition. The point is uh, that, again, divine doom is coming upon Egypt. God is controlling, Yahweh God is controlling these events. In destroying the vegetation, God not only left the land bankrupt, but he also triumphed over Osiris, the Egyptian god of fertility and crops. And last time we mentioned a number of other uh, gods that would be associated with the crops, etc. cetera. Osiris being one of the big gods uh, in the Egyptian pantheon. But nonetheless, o- Osiris is here being humiliated by Yahweh as, he is, uh, as Yahweh brings the plague of locusts and destroys all of the crops. So what, what is interesting is the ruin described back in verse 7, by pharaoh 's officers, if they thought that Egypt was already ruined back in verse seven, then, as Weersby points out, then what was their opinion of the situation after Locust arrived? right They said it was the land is in ruin, according to verse seven, but then there were still some green things, there were still some fruit in the trees, apparently, but now there 's nothing left at the end of verse fifteen. So the plague comes. God decimates the land of Egypt yet again. So what happens next? Well, then we have this kind of postlude to the plague, which is, this is a pretty similar pattern. We see this with almost all the plague accounts. There's, there's typically an introduction. It might be one or two verses, or in this case, like 11 verses. This is, a uh, recall, the eighth plague is the second longest uh, plague account recorded up to this point. All right? the seventh plague was actually a little longer. The record of the seventh plague was was longer. Then the, sec- the uh, second longest up till now is the eighth plague that we're studying right here. And then, of course, that'll all be paled in comparison to uh, the tenth and final plague that, that gives several chapters, right? There's a lot of ink given to the, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. But nonetheless, after you have an introduction, then a record of the plague itself, then there's typically the response of Pharaoh, right? The postlude, if you will. So what we're going to see in these just few verses is we're going to see Pharaoh repents, verses 16 to 18, and then Yahweh relents, verses 19 and 20. All right, so again, this is a pretty similar thought flow to what we've seen before, but there's greater degree of intensity. Recall that we've talked about this many times in our study, but the 10 plagues are going to be very repetitive in how they are you know laid out, like the introduction, the plague itself, the postlude. But... Where we we see a growing intensity in the plagues, not only in the devastation that the plague causes, but then also we're seeing an intensity in the relationship between Pharaoh, Moses, Aaron, and we saw it at the prelude, right? The introduction to this plague, Moses and Aaron make the announcement, turn, walk out, right? That's the boldest we've seen them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes, fetches them, brings them back in, barks orders, and then chases them out, right? That's the most hostile we've seen pharaoh up to this point obviously things are getting intense well we're, we're going to see a similar sort of reaction in the sense of just the the growing and in intensity sort of reaction when we get to uh this this postlude so verse 16 to 20 let's read it it says then pharaoh called for moses and aaron in haste and he said i have sinned against the lord your god and against you we'll come back to that but that's the first time he said that It says, now therefore forgive, I pray you, my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord and the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in the coast, in all the coasts of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. So of course the Stage is set for the ninth plague, which we'll get into next time. But notice in verses sixteen to eighteen, it records Pharaoh's you know quasi repentance. Now, in these verses, Pharaoh admits his guilt. He asks for forgiveness and he requests prayer for the removal of the plague. All right. Now, what's interesting is that none of these factors was new. For instance, just pop back briefly, back to chapter 9, at the end of the seventh plague, uh, Pharaoh had a similar response, though his response is more intense at the uh, end of the eighth plague. But let me draw your attention back to chapter 9, verse 27-28. It says, What's that? Oh, no, no. Yeah, so it says, let's just reread it. it. says, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail and I will let you go and you will stay no longer. In other words, none of these factors that we see, his, his admission of guilt, his asking for forgiveness and his requests for prayer for the removal of the plague, none of these factors is new. Therefore, the reader has reason to retain some skepticism uh, about how long Pharaoh's apparent repentance would actually last and how genuine it actually was. In other words, we've seen this before, right? And so it's like we're, the reader by now is becoming rather, you know, insightful to the actual hard heart of Pharaoh. Yet on the other hand, there are at least three indications in these verses of a somewhat greater intensity in Pharaoh's attitude. All right, there's at least three different things. Can you spot them? Is there anything that stands out as we just read chapter 9, verse 27 to 28, and we read chapter 10, verses 16 to 18? Do you see what are some indications that there's a greater degree of intensity? In other words, Pharaoh's attitude is, is becoming a little bit more sober. Do you see any differences, any observations yeah. before I rattle them off? What's that? In haste. Okay, excellent. He said it in haste. That's good, yeah. Uh, 16, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. Okay, good. Sense of urgency. Oh, I like that. He asked for forgiveness. Okay, he asked for forgiveness. Interesting. Yep, He because he did admit sin last time, right? In verse in chapter nine, verse 27, but now he is, and he did admit, uh, I and my people are wicked, right? But now he's actually asking for forgiveness. All right, good. All right. He sinned against Moses and Aaron too. Okay, excellent, good. He's not only saying, I, I sinned against the Lord, but against Moses and Aaron. All right, good, yeah.
2: So, mm-hmm. you know, Pharaoh's being used by God to demonstrate something, correct? Yes. <laughs> so if you look at, as in 27, he says he sinned. And, and then, you know, he keeps flip-flopping back and forth. And, and it's just, to me, it almost helps, kind of helps clarify. Because in other places, I was just reading Second Chronicles about, like, um, the whole Rehoboam thing. And then they went to the leaders of Israel. And then they repented. So then God didn't let them be destroyed by Egypt. So it kind of shows that if when people do repent, God's like, okay destroy you and there's other places in psalm and whatnot but because he's being used for a different reason he doesn't really get that observed consistency you know what i mean yeah because god has a great plan mm-hmm. so and i just wonder if because pharaoh sits there and he goes all i sin," and then they turn right around and does it again i wonder if he's getting like because it's ramping up because he's getting like what's wrong with me or maybe he's getting like this why do i you know what i'm saying and then mm-hmm. his servants can see like hey man you know they kind of questioned it. Right. In other words there's a supernatural yeah, hand at like work. Dial, like he has no control over the dial
0: of you know the beans are boiling and he's in them. Yeah. <laughs> the beans are boiling and he's in them. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's part of it, right? Is and I think again we this is the first time in the eighth uh, plague here that we see Moses or Pharaoh's uh, servants actually intercede on behalf of Egypt. Like, you know, they're they're actually and that's risky, right? I mean, they're risking themselves to go and actually say to Pharaoh, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe you should reconsider, you know. And so they're, they're seeing, like you said, the hardening of Pharaoh, and they're starting to wonder, like, Pharaoh, do you not realize what's happening? Right. And so I think, yeah, it's definitely an indicator of the hard heart of Pharaoh where he's, he's becoming insane, yeah, if uh, you will.
2: Tim and I were whispering back about, like, I wonder if Pharaoh really thinks he's a god even though he, he can he sees his flaws you know and mm-hmm. he sees that he needs to take a shower you know whatever so it's like right. you know yeah what I'm saying? Like no i do he's, he's i do his, his humanness i guess mm-hmm. and but now it's being shown to everybody else a little bit the inconsistency and yes the vacillation
0: well, and and again, I think we'll come back to that in just a minute. But I think the idea that he's even confessing any fault, like yeah. that, was a major yeah. break of protocol. Like pharaohs weren't supposed to do right. that. And so we do see a major, you know, uh, you know, sense of of defiance in his m- heart and mind. Yeah. But I think a loss of confidence, in, yeah. you know, in his leadership by his own subjects. You he know, they're unraveled. yeah, he's he's coming unraveled, and. You know, I, I don't. I, I can't answer that with any degree of certainty. But you ask, can, what is Pharaoh's own mindset? Does he actually believe he is a god? Yeah, it's just speculation, and I don't know. But we do have episodes in history where that seems to, to be the case. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you. I mean, one of my favorite historic uh, characters to study, just because he has an interesting life, <laughs> is Alexander the Great. And you know, Plutarch's Lives he writes about him, and I mean, there's just a lot of, but there's there's a very clear shift in Alexander's. Uh, life, and it's when he goes, you know, he had victory after victory after victory after victory. His, he was leading the charge, his people, you know, his, just, he had the loyalty of his soldiers. Um, but then he goes down to Egypt, and there was a group of priests that declared him to be a god. And what's fascinating is that historically, there's, you know, his own subjects start describing, and later looking back, they, they point to that moment where Alexander started being, he acted different. You know, and, like, he started going a little insane. You know, he started becoming unravel. In other words, like, maybe he drank his own Kool-Aid, you know. I mean, yeah, he started believing. Yeah, he got drunk on his own power. And then some of his most loyal subjects, he ordered their death out of a fit of rage. And he, he ordered them killed. And, I mean, he lost so much loyalty from his, you know. Uh, and I mean, if you know the story, it's it's kind of a, you know interesting story, but it, I think it illustrates at least that that is definitely possible, that people get to the point where they become drunk with power and they believe themselves, you know, they believe their own lie, in other words. Um, and, you know, just one more comment on that and then we'll, we'll move off of it. But uh, this question has come up several times in other past studies, but the question about Satan himself, in other words, what is Satan's mindset? Uh, you know and I again I, I, I can't say with any great degree of certainty but I, I suspect uh, that because the question is always posed is like if Satan knows that he can't win why does he keep fighting like why does he fight God okay so there's several answers to that okay so first answer I got nothing to lose I'm just gonna you know burn what I can and take it down with me alright so just out of spite he's gonna keep fighting uh, second answer is that he actually believes he can win. Uh, Why would he believe that? Two possible answers to that. First is what we're talking about. Like he's drank his own Kool-Aid. He believes his own lie. Like he actually thinks he can beat God. Um, But, you know, do you remember our study of the, you know, paganism has this interesting idea. It's a very pagan idea, not a biblical one. But it's it's called the, the doctrine of emanations. And it's this idea that there was one time a creator, And maybe there still is, but it took power out of him to create. So he is now lesser than he once was. You know, he drained some power and resources. And so, and not only that, but there's also a connected idea. The idea is the more worshipers you have, the more power you have, right? So maybe Satan has actually believed his own lie, right, that if he gains enough worshipers, if he turns enough away from God, that he could actually gain enough strength and beat God, right? I don't know. I, I mean, I—it's I, just an interesting thought to think about the psyche of Satan, right? I mean, but nonetheless.
2: Well, they say if you tell a, you know, you hear people say if you tell a lie enough times, to believe it. Well, it's not a long time to tell. A
0: lie. That's right. That's right. He's been telling the lies a long time. It, Maybe he's starting to believe him himself, Warren. If you look at
1: the second. Secular- Say that Satan could assert that he was winning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He killed the son of God. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't killed. Mm-hmm. He was resurrected. Look at all the countries of the world, the ones that are really ruled by uh, uh, servants of Satan's. Mm-hmm. And destroy others. Mm-hmm. You would say, Satan could say, look over there, you know, just like he did to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Look over there at China, look what I've done there, look at Russia, hey, look at Arabia, think, the Mid East. Mm-hmm. Where is God successful? Mm-hmm. Maybe down there in Africa, but that's a, a real pit anyway. Yep. You know, even though some people are being saved there, it's a the real pit. Where is God doing well? God can say, say, God's not doing well anywhere. Mm -hmm. As we look at our world, Mm -hmm. does that not add to to someone's self-worth and sense of accomplishment and pride and and feeling successful?
0: Absolutely. No, I think so. And don't forget, you know, like coming back to this text, you're exactly right. I think Pharaoh, that would apply to Pharaoh. I mean, look at the, the strength, the antiquity of Egypt. Everybody fears Egypt right so just the 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 idea of seeming success would continue to reinforce and feed that psychological you know thought that he's a god that you know I'm powerful enough to resist Yahweh. who is yahweh i don't know yahweh i've never heard of yahweh right and so he's he's but he's obviously being introduced to yahweh <laughs> but nonetheless but yeah i think you're exactly right it's just that look at the numbers look at the seeming success and it's just reinforcing his pride and his arrogance and his you know, willingness to resist Yahweh. You got a thought? I was just going back to
3: that. Um, clearly, you are bent on evil, and that Pharaoh says, and then he he drives them out. He thinks he's driving out the evil. He doesn't even realize that he's going against the only one who can drive out evil. And um, you know, That's and good. Jesus even having the authority to give other people that um, power to drive out evil and stuff. And I'm just thinking that is a that's a pretty big head, and then right here in the end, he kind of says, "Take the deadly plague away from me." Where before he says, "Me and my people." So it's it's starting to I think
0: mm. become that's more an interesting observation. That, yep,
3: you know maybe I'm not the that mm. I thought I was.
0: That's good. That's excellent. That's excellent. So I think you guys hit them all. I, I have a couple in the notes. You, you might have even had a couple more. This is really good. But in other words, what are, the, what are the indications that he, Pharaoh, has a greater intensity in his attitude in this situation? Well, first, he quickly or who said in haste. Do you? Yeah, in, in he in haste or he quickly summoned Moses and Aaron, thus rapidly reversing himself publicly relative to his final offer back in verse eleven. Right, that was supposed to be his final offer, but he's reneging on that. Right, that he's he's losing face in in that sense. Uh, And he's opening himself up to the humiliation any ruler could experience by going uh, back on a public stance, originally designed to show toughness, right? So he's reversing course. Secondly, he now acknowledged sinning against the Lord in addition to sinning against Moses and Aaron. I think these were also pointed out. Whereas in the prior plague account, he merely acknowledged generally as having sinned or been wrong, right? Back in chapter 9, verse 27, now he says, I've sinned against the Lord and against you guys, Moses and Aaron. And then lastly, Pharaoh actually asked Moses and Aaron to forgive him, which represents yet another way of acknowledging that he was wrong. And they and the true God were right. Now, again, this uh, is, is tempered while Pharaoh does seek forgiveness. He says only this once right? <laughs> Sorry. In other words, Pharaoh's uh, recognizing some responsibility for the present plague of the locusts, but he refuses to own up to any liability for the first seven disasters, right? That, well, maybe this time I screwed up, but, <laughs> right? In other words, he, he's, there's definitely, he seems to be holding back, if you will. But nonetheless, don't forget, Pharaoh's admittance of sin is itself significant. We talked about this uh, last time, well, a couple times ago, back in chapter 9, But the ancient Egyptians believed him, Pharaoh, to be divine and sinless during his lifetime. At his death, he was not thought to face any judgment. He was simply transformed into the god Osiris. Interesting. He's an incarnation of Ra, and then at his death, he's transformed into Osiris. Who's the, again, uh, Osiris is the one being specifically attacked by this eighth plague, the plague of locusts, because Osiris was supposed to be the god over the vegetation, you know, the fertility and the crops. But in the last, Pharaoh was believed to, to be transformed to the god Osiris, who presided over judgment and death. But in the Exodus episode, he is pictured as one who is deserving of facing judgment day and death. In other words, he is being, how would you put it, revealed as not, you know, he's, he's being unraveled. He's being revealed as a weak god, right? And his own people are starting to question, you know, his, his ability to lead, as we saw back in verse 7. Right? They're already starting to doubt his leadership and his choices. What's that? His credibility as a God. Yeah, exactly. His credibility as a God, which, remember, is one of the major subplots of the book of Exodus is whom will you serve? Do you really want to serve Pharaoh, right? Or would you rather serve Yahweh? Look at his credentials. Yeah. Um, so, they don't think that divine Pharaoh can be sinful. So, I mean, what is their definition of sin you
3: know, Oh, yeah.
0: That's a great point. Did y'all catch that? Catherine's just pointing out that, hey, you know, what is their definition of sin? If they believe him to be sinless, you know, and, and you're right, they redefine what sin is, right? I mean, uh, an illustration can be seen in the mo- in the modern time, but the idea of, of blindly following, for instance, uh, whether it was, you know a Roman Catholic Pope, or whether it was Joseph Smith, or whether it was Muhammad, right, take your pick, but people, they just believe him, they believe his claims, and then when Muhammad steals all the women and makes them his wives, and Joseph Smith does the same thing, you know, they're like, well, he must be right, you know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying, I mean, and and there was obviously those that resisted him, but but the point is, there's, what's that? He must need it, right? I, I just don't understand, right? But that idea of, of just a blind following, even though, you know, in other words, they're moving the goalposts. They're redefining what sin is to, sin to is hold up. What's that? As in today.
1: As in today. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And exactly. We're doing it all the time. Yeah. Carl. And
1: this still Bob's thunder, the people that did drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, you know, that's right.
0: The people did drink the Kool-Aid, right? That's exactly right. Which is why you know the Bible tries to give so many, you know, and Moses himself will be the guy that gives us so many guidelines on how to interpret a, the difference between a true and a false prophet, right? Because it's true, most people are sheep, right? And and we we just follow, and and sometimes we do so without thinking, and and, and being. In a critical in a good way, critical of our leaders and where they 're leading, you know, but I think we 're seeing it you know here in you know Egypt, we see it at you know, like the modern day i mean it 's just all over the place, but nonetheless, notice God does relent in verse nineteen and twenty. God graciously stays his hand and he removes the locusts from the land by providentially causing a strong west wind to blow them into the Red Sea now again linguistically, this will become important uh, only in the sense that we're going to see a very similar phrase appear later in Exodus 14. So by the time we get to the second time, our second reading of the book of Exodus, we, we read this phrase in a different way. If this was your very first time reading this, right, then you're just like, okay, but this is now your second time reading this and you have the knowledge that God is actually later going to throw the Egyptian army into the Red Sea. Right, And it's like now you can see a foreshadowing. In other words, God is capable right of taking a vast army. Remember the book of Joel, the locusts are likened to a vast army, and God can take the army and throw it into the Red Sea, and he's going to do it again with the Egyptians. and so the, and that's we talked about that a little bit in men's group a little bit, but the idea of, of reading the scripture uh the first time right? And then you read it a second or a third or a fourth time. And there's there's so many things that you can see later that you didn't see the first time. Why? Well, sometimes it's because you know the end of the story. And so you're seeing now foreshadowings, you're seeing connections, you know, earlier in the text that you didn't see the first time. And that's one of the you know, things that makes the Bible so fun to, to read and study, et cetera. But nonetheless, um, I mean, you tell me, I, I got a couple points, but I don't want to, you know, I want to hear what you guys, your big takeaways. But when you, when you think through this eighth plague and you look in particular, I'm I'm fascinated by this dynamic between Moses and, and Aaron and Pharaoh and this relationship and this tension. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. But nonetheless, what are your big application points that you take away from this? What are you seeing? Whether it's Pharaoh, I think we just spent a long, you know, time talking about the hard heart of Pharaoh, believing his own lie, drinking his own Kool-Aid, how we can become drunk with power, right? that's an application point. In other words, look at this plague from the perspective of Pharaoh and see how we can practically see how that can happen to us, it can happen to anyone. Um, but what else are you seeing? I mean, I think we can look at it from the perspective of Pharaoh's servants, right? We talked about that, that they're losing confidence in this God, Pharaoh. What what else do you see? So it really just reminds me of people who become, become very, very famous,
3: like an like Elvis Presley, Justin Bieber, whoever it is, and all of a sudden they change in what they think will affect them, and they think yeah. that they can do all these drugs and live this lifestyle, and other people die from that, but they would never. Right. And they begin to be worshipped, and they people begin to follow them and actually do what they say, and all of a sudden something twists in their mind. And unless somebody comes through... That can help them to see the reality of what's happening.
0: Most of them are completely demolished by it, just yeah. the same way that we see happening here. That's right. That's good. That's good. We can see a lot of exempl- uh, you know, contemporary examples of that, historic examples of that. Right, right. Whether we talk about Alexander the Great or, you know, Elvis Presley or, what else did you say, Justin Bieber, so or yeah, I mean, just fill in the blank. Exactly. It's true. If they get idolized, the power and the and the influence goes sh- straight to their head and they become self destructive. They believe it. And they believe their, their own you know, their own lie or what's what they're being told. Maybe it's you know, just maybe it's flattery and praise. Right? Yeah. Michael Jackson? Who said that? No. <laughs> yes, you got some? What thought was when people in leadership surround themselves with Yep. That's good. Amen. That's right. That's good. Amen. Everyone, catch that. That's an excellent application point. Is in other words, we can see in Pharaoh the tendency of human nature right, to drink our own Kool-Aid, but there's an applicational point, is surround yourself, not with flatterers, right, your biggest fans, but with people who will tell you the truth, that'll shoot straight with you. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, yeah, yeah, there's a proverb sermon, I feel it coming on, right? <laughs> Amen. Yeah, you got a thought? No a Lord and God. Uh-huh. And, um, mm. Maybe he's I'd have to do a search on that. that there's something
3: bigger mm-hmm. than just the words that the, uh, Moses is saying. He's actually thinking, Wow, there is something bigger than what I think here.
0: No, that's good. That's I don't good. Know if that is the first
3: time, but it, I just noticed that. And then I was thinking about the east and west wind and how God takes Hmm. then we can kind of see the differences that he makes in different ways than we would normally expect God to live.
0: Amen. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Good. He works through the unexpected yeah. so many times. Amen. Which is in and of itself evidence that it's God working. Right. right? Amen. Amen. Were you so, going to say something? and then going
2: well, going off the point back there
0: about uh, you, know, you want to surround yourself with people who uh, will help you you a better person or, or tell you the truth, yeah. But like, say, people that get so much pride in their lives because they're so puffed up on their power and their pride, they want to push
2: everyone out that tells them the truth or tells them that they yes. might be doing wrong. That's right, they might be taking the wrong path. They're going to completely push them out, ignore them, and get rid of them because they don't want to to them.
0: That's right, that's right. And and uh, that just made me think, you know, illustration wise, you know, you got Pharaoh and then you have Moses, and what's so interesting is they're they're polar opposites in their leadership, right? Pharaoh's your classic, egotistical, proud, arrogant, you know, dominating dictator. But then you have Moses, who is going to be labeled the meekest man in all the earth. He's going to take incredible amounts of criticism, and yet he's going to be very meek and mild. So go he'll to God, help, he he'll he he go to God, he'll go to God, exactly. He'll intercede, he'll listen to Jethro, right? I mean, he'll get good advice, and he'll listen to people, and I mean, there's it, it, yeah, that's good. It's it's a very powerful application, but that's the way we need to be. That's good. Catherine, and then we'll go back. Yeah,
3: um, just like this example where there's Moses and Aaron and a huge, you know, power of Egypt or the example of Babylon and Daniel, you know, where there's huge principalities and power, all you need is just one or two people of God to bring his word to bring down of these powerful
0: empires. Amen no that's a good yeah that's a good point Let's look at the power of you know whether it's Egypt here or Babylon or Persia later you know you just need a couple of faithful people right that God can use to bring down even mighty empires that's good that's good Becky and then we'll come up
3: I was thinking about that uh, faith too is you know that we have the same God yesterday today tomorrow and he's the one that can change the winds in our life and we just need to put our faith in him so Mm -hmm. that He
0: will change him. Oh, I like that. He's the God who can change the winds of our life, mm-hmm. right? From an east wind to a west wind. <laughs> Amen. And I encourage you sometime do a word study on the east wind. It shows up all throughout the scripture as this bad omen, right? I mean, it's, yeah. I was thinking about um,
3: when Jesus calmed the, um,
0: the, the wind mm-hmm. that was blowing in. I was trying to think of which one that was. Or... The Sea of Galilee Um-huh. there? Yeah.
3: The bad winds that were blowing in in Jesus' comp, the winds, the waves,
0: and, um, I have to double check. I don't know if it's specifically mentioned as an east wind, but it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, there's there's a lot of interesting studies there about Galilee in particular, because it's it's actually it sits, there's this it's like a cone. It sits down. It, you know, the the surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And so and there's this vortex that happens, and if I'm uh if I remember correctly, it can be either side. Wind coming from the east or the west. And it creates this, called a venturi effect. It's like this, you know, basically a big tornado sort of effect. And it just swirls the water in the galley. And it can become incredibly dangerous, incredibly fast. Because of just the topography. And how the wind, you know, is funneled down into this low spot. It's quite the squall. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What were you going to say?
2: I was just kind of thinking, I was reading that line where... Um... In a where where uh, Pharaoh says, Well, who are the ones that are going? So you take this guy that's proud, just like he's just dictating, and he's 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 kind of down to the point where he's he's asking them, you know, he's not he's not telling them what's going on. He's like it's almost like a negotiation or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking I uh, you know, in 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 our Christian faith, when our faith is tested, you know, like Book of James says, Little count all joy, but you know, as soon as this guy who's you know, is so privileged, he's really tested. He just, he kind of, it led to that whole unravel thing, and it shows, like, the point where you know, someone who's so proud would probably never have asked negotiating with slaves. Well, right. Who's going? You know, you just hmm. kind of see this, as the stress goes up, his his faith goes down.
0: That's good, that's good. And I think that's that's huge. I think, you know, the idea that not only do we see...
2: Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, it's his faith tested, he just...
0: Absolutely, and we do see God's exalting. You know, as Catherine said, these two nobodies, these two slaves, right? But He's using. You know, now we have consider. You know, in one sense, probably we could consider Pharaoh one of the most, if not the most, powerful man on the earth at the time, from a you know geopolitical standpoint, and yet he's negotiating with slaves, right? right? Because the God of these Hebrews. Is bringing him to the table. That's right. <laughs> That's good. Amen. Amen. Man, you guys are good at this. All right. Anything else? Any other application points before I know we're over time, like the usual? Yeah.
2: Also, from like Moses' point of view, you know, he's seeing God do exactly what God said he was going to do at the beginning of Exodus when he said, Amen. I'm going to send you down there, and I'm going to his heart. That's right. I'm going to send these flags. And... That's good. But I think he's going to need his faith to be built in order for him to lead those stiff-necked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amen. In other words, we just, you know, compared and contrast Pharaoh and Moses in their leadership— but then look at what God had to do and you know, Moses wasn't always like that, right? Look at what God had to do in Moses' life to get him there. That's good. That's right. He was a shepherd in the backside of the desert for 40 years, right? That'll humble anybody. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are out of time, but excellent feedback. That's fun stuff. Okay. We'll close in prayer next time. We're going to jump into the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And then we are knocking on the door uh, of the 10th and final plague and uh, the actual exodus, which is recorded in chapter 12. So fun stuff. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the record of this, uh, just this history of what you did to humiliate the proud Pharaoh, to illustrate to us uh, how you are a mighty God that can overcome the uh, the pantheon of Egypt, the most feared nation on the face of the earth at the time. Lord, we can see your power, and yet we can see, Lord, our human nature, that we are very much like Pharaoh. We can, we can drink our own Kool-Aid, as we say, that, Lord, we can come to believe our own lie, become drunk with power, believe our our flatterers. And yet, Lord, we must surround ourselves with people who are genuine friends, who will sharpen us, who will point out our weaknesses in a loving, gracious way, help us uh, to to grow, to become better. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to learn these lessons, to live them, to, to look to you as the God who... Uh, who can change the winds of our life as as was mentioned lord we are so grateful that you are the god that is in control and we ask that you would help us to learn of you to trust you all the more to follow you uh, lord and to live in a way that that honors and glorifies you that maybe we can be uh, one uh, one of the few that is used by you to to herald your truth to a lost and dying world that lord you can use us as you did with moses and aaron Lord, to to face up against uh, mighty empires, but that, Lord, we would simply do the right thing and be used by you for your glory. So, Lord, we just want to dedicate our lives to you afresh. We want to renew our commitment to you, and we pray your blessing upon our lives as we go our separate ways this evening. And we say all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.